This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Right, hello and welcome to episode 83 of What Most People Think. And I hope you're enjoying the new freedoms, the new the new freedoms to do the thing that you're already doing. You're free to do the stuff that you'd already independently decided was reasonable uh, in the first place. And obviously, you know, we get these freedoms because the vaccination is rolling out and it continues to roll out. We just, all we need to do now is vaccinate the over 80s, over 70s, over 50s, children, garden gnomes, the ghost of Orson Welles and possibly the ghost of Jill Dando. I've just threw that one in there. And I, I've just appalled Simon Evans already there. Um, <laughs> I've got Simon Evans back on the show. As you know, people coming back to the show for a third time are now officially co-hosts. Welcome back to the show, Simon. Thank you very much. I'm very uh, encouraged and pleased to hear about my improved status. Well, it, it's, it's part of a cast. I think there are certain people that are guests, but I'd like to think that there are. Well, certainly anybody on the, the WhatsApp group you know, uh, is, is now <laughs> an official cast member. I hope you're uh, you're sort of enjoying the As we speak, it's, I always sort of date check it. We're recording this on Wednesday, just coming up to lunchtime. And then we've had a tweet from uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock telling us to enjoy the sun. I, I don't know about you, but what, what point did he become like a hesitant stepdad to the nation? <laughs> he, it's very strange. I mean, I suppose, like, if people are coming to their political awareness around now, like the idea of politicians speaking to us in this way is, is all that they've known. But it is fucking weird, isn't it? That, that you sort of you, you sort of thought, oh, you know, set policies, uh, you know, be involved in the creations of laws. But but them having advice on barbecues—that's new, isn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose we have just we've been smothered and suffocated to the extent that they are just sort of shouting under the duvet now. Make make sure you don't get tangled under there, isn't it? It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, they're just bringing out plates of marmite sandwiches and warm cocoa for us now, basically, aren't they? We've been it's so utterly state. It's beyond the nanny state, isn't it? It's the stepdad state. I yeah, think. yeah. It's someone who has come into your life that doesn't really have like an official. It can work very well as a relationship. I, you know, I had a great stepdad myself, but it's still a difficult one, isn't it? Because they don't have an official mandate. And no, you feel you you don't sort of recognise any genetic affinity with Matt Hancock, and then and then here he is sort of <laughs> advising sure you <laughs> to get through your uh, adolescence. I don't know. I mean, I find it slightly sinister because my suspicion is that they are. Up, it's you, you can have one of two dystopias. Either this is all our government does now, basically, it's like a yes. series of sort of like health centre leaflets and, and and pastoral shaded posters, or or that's that's to distract us while they do go off and consult with the World Economic Forum about the Great Reset. You know, you've got those two yes. options, and it's like neither of them are very sort of reassuring. No, you're right. I've been suckered into the being annoyed about sort of very parochial advice when actually I really should be annoyed about the fact they've com they seem to have completely flipped their position on vaccine passports. 
Yeah. What is interesting, though, and I mean, I've been on loads of these sort of podcasts where we talk about it and I tend to end up with like minded people, but we represent a tiny minority, you know, in the really country do. now. You know, it's extraordinary how popular their whole and, and because the vaccine rollout has been a tremendous success, which on its own terms, it has, regardless of how you feel about having a vaccine for this mm. thing. It's uh, it's it's had a retroactive effect on on the perception of how well they've handled everything. Everything, you know, mm. their their general status and ranking is is, is shot up. I saw a, a really quite sort of explicit graph yesterday that that demonstrated that it's since October, their public approval of how they have handled everything has improved by at least a third. You know, on about seven or eight different metrics of how well you handle the old people, how well you handle furlough, how well you handled mm. the policing of the situation. It's all gone up by sort of between a third and fifty percent. It's it's extraordinary. You know, it's that's how public perception is handled. But I think it's also, we're very short-termist at the moment. That's one thing. I also think that the vaccine, for me, always felt like it was going to be, you know, those Ashes Down Under tours where England would go to Australia. We're going to get, this is before we started getting whitewashed when, weirdly, we've got a better team. But we used to have three ones. We always used to be three one. And there was like a really strong sense that if you could just win the last test match, it really, you got on that plane, buoyed up. And and I think that what England have done... I'll give you an even more brutal example that I read a book a while ago which proved that um, when people have a medical procedure the thing that they remember the only thing that they remember is the peak experience like how painful it got at its worst and also and significantly as a mitigating factor how it was at the end how it ended how the whole process ended And if the whole process ends quite painlessly, then they tend to put in their on their form afterwards that they found the whole thing was fine, even though at one point they were in agony mm. if the last half an hour was fine. So now, if, for instance, they give you a prostate examination with one of those sort of, you know, cameras on the end of an optical fiber type jobby, yeah. that going in, that's quite painful and discomforting. Then they leave it there pointlessly for half an hour just so that the last half hour of your of your procedure which is utterly redundant and has serves no medical purpose whatsoever except to make you feel that that was part of the procedure and that has been because that's relatively comfort comfortable your whole memory of how comfortable the whole experience was is, is, is adjusted upwards even though all they've done is extend it by a meaningless half hour well, it's a bit like um, it's a bit like comedy, isn't it? Like open well, finish well. I mean, I don't know about you, but yeah, you do gigs. There's there's such a disproportionate pressure on the last gig, on the last gag that you do, where yeah. it just feels like sex that ends weirdly, doesn't it? If <laughs> the last gig, uh, that was good for quite a while. And then it just ended strangely. So maybe they factored all <laughs> in. Maybe they were just sort of phoning it in, and they just thought, look, as long as we get the vaccine right. As long as we, we come on the nation's tits at the end, it will be fine. <laughs> right, with that, with that uh, profanity, uh, <laughs> it brings me neatly to the the cuss count, which is uh, I don't know if this is a new thing since you were last on, but we sort of were tracking the curve of swearing in the same way that Chris Whitty might track incidences of a virus. So I had a solo right. episode last week, and it was basic seventeen fuckings, four fucks, two shit houseries, which is I like that swear word, two arseholes and two shits, which is point seven swears a minute but you're on the we've got a leaderboard as well simon and okay so there's 28 people on it where, where would you imagine that you're sort of coming swears wise so what on your podcasts just yeah. on your podcast but I'm, I'm not a big swear i don't think the occasional no. sort of punctuation but i would think i was in the bottom third i would have thought yeah you're coming at two two episodes one swear so 0. 0.5 Oof. yeah it's low it's do, you, low. do you remember what it was i didn't bother it. I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think it was something Chaucerian, but 
Dash it all. <laughs> but it's up to you. You could either kind of keep up that sort of proud record of not yeah. needing to swear, or or you could realise that it has, is actually big and clever. Well, I think uh, the, the whole point of swearing, isn't it, is that it's an attempt to be offensive among people with a limited vocabulary. I've always encouraged my children to yeah. think this. I've no, no problem with being offensive, but just be creative with it, you know. And it's yeah. of course, there are far, far more offensive words available to us now, an ever-increasing stock. <laughs> Yeah, portmanteau swear words as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, those are just horribly twee, aren't they? The cockwomble sort of. Uh... They do work though. No, I, I agree. I like <laughs> I like shit housery. I do. Oh, think... that's a good one. Yeah, but that I feels think... like a builder's portmanteau, doesn't it? Rather if than someone said of... utter shit housery. I just feel like it really specifically. There's a really brilliant uh, Twitter website, a uh, Twitter account called Cricket Shit Housery, and it's just the lowest. <laughs> and there's something really funny about a sport that's supposed to be sort of noble, and anyone who loves the sport. <laughs> Well, no, that it's anything but. What does it mean, though? Shit house? Is it? Does it? Is it just mean I have no time for this, or is it? Shit housery would be kind of like acting like an arsehole, I suppose. Right. Just kind of jackanapes. Low, low, yeah, low level Machiavellian behavior. I think. Ah, right. Okay. That's, that's my cynical. Own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pakistani ball tampering, basically, is what you're talking about, right? Well, we have to now say that not just Pakistani ball tampering. Well, yeah, yeah. the most recent example. <laughs> Obviously, was was white people, Simon? Actually, was that the, the Australian, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, with the sandpaper, yeah. and he was in tears at the press conference. It was hilarious. Nothing, I mean, look, I'm going to say it, and and this is really unevolved, but I love seeing men cry in public. I think it's fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a good laugh, I'm isn't sorry. it? I've let everyone down. Yeah, Fantastic. we have new patrons this week. New patrons, patrons. Uh, we've got Connor D. Sounds like a rapper. Michael Smith. I mean, the, the great thing about when you get the surname Smith, you always think that their parents must think, okay, this is one of the most common surnames in Britain. I would always tend to, to think we need an exotic first name, but they've got Michael yeah. Michael Smith. They they didn't want him to stand out. They didn't want him to be noticed. No, the thing about Smith is, you're right, Michael Smith is very boring, but if it's if you have an exotic first name, it immediately becomes fully film star, doesn't it? You know, if you yeah. go Muhammad Smith, that's like instantly yeah, no, interesting. No. We also got... Uh, Alex Mungovan, Mungovan. I mean, it's not a pretty name, Alex. I mean, and, and also, by the way, patrons be well aware they're paying me money, and I do generally insult their names. <laughs> Mungovan. Mungovan does sound like a Hungarian insult, doesn't it? Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, I yeah. don't know what it what it means. I mean, it might just be like a. Van. How dare you go? <laughs> it's like a substandard kebab van, just one you wouldn't trust, maybe. M- Mung- <laughs> The patrons, uh, there'll be we're gonna the subjects we're gonna get through today. We're gonna be talking about the teacher in Batley that showed the cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad. We'll also be looking at a school. So it's both about schools this week. That has uh, well, I'll tell you in a while. I don't want to trigger you. It's one of the most annoying news stories I've read in some time. Uh, but also, we're gonna hopefully get to some letters for Simon at the end. And the letters come from the VIP patrons. When we get guests back, the VIP patrons have first dibs on the letters. So there'll be a few of those. But before we get into the subject, Simon, uh, just a quick thank you and a fuck you. Is there something you are grateful for and something you are really pissed off about this week? Yeah, I am. I'm actually quite grateful historically. In fact, this ties in, although I didn't intend it to, with what I was saying earlier about about swearing. Because I've been reading a book. Um, I'm doing a, a sort of book review for the Spectator every so often at the moment, and I sort of, uh, you know, collate them into by theme. And I'm doing sort of history of conservative and right wing thought. Um, to find out where it lost its way. And uh, and I've been reading about some of the great historical conservative figures, and it is so bracing to hear people expressing conservative ideas without any kind of apologetic undertones, yeah. you know, the way that the kind of like ameliorating, logic-chopping sort of like 
minced version of of the thought that you get nowadays from from supposedly conservative government. People like if you want to look at the, the book called The Conservative Mind by Russell Kirk is a great history of conservative thinkers from Edmund Burke onwards and. John Randolph of Roanoke, who was a sort of Southern senator in the, about the 18, 1810s, that, around that time. John C. Calhoun, people like this, fantastic, staunch defense of conservative principles, completely unapologetic acknowledgement that men are not born equal and are not to be considered equal to one another. <laughs> so you, just, you wouldn't hear that on either side of the chamber now. So I'm very grateful to, uh, I suppose, the uh, persistence of the written word. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, that idea of just simply acknowledging that people are born with different sort of talents and, and ability. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. sounds radical now, doesn't it? But I mean, it's like we all fucking know deep down that's how it is. If you don't acknowledge it, then the whole idea of conservative politics falls apart. The idea of, of like con- trying to maintain any any kind of rightist principle without acknowledging yeah. that simple fact is just absurd. It, it's cruel and, and incoherent, but nobody's willing to acknowledge it anymore. It's bizarre. Even though it's the you know the heart of all folk wisdom and drama and everything that's ever been written or... or I mean, I just think stage. in people's families as well, this is... I often think this about tough love. A lot of people who identify as against tough love, yeah. if you brought it down to a localised level and their friends and family, they'd have all exercised it at some point. And yeah. similarly, uh, if you if you spoke about innate abilities on a family level, everyone would be able to tell you who, who had which innate ability. But somehow, yeah. the moment you scale that up outside their fucking immediate postcode, it's <laughs> problematic. It's so true. I do think this is one of the things people say you go right, you drift right wing after parenthood. And a lot of people, I think, put that down to the idea that you want to protect your children from society. So you become a bit more of a law and order enthusiast, you know. But I think it's much more no blank slate view of the world can survive the second child. You know, the idea that they come into the world as this kind of thing you can form and create and and sort of like you're lucky if if you can get them to sort of grow even remotely vertically. You know, it's like such gnarly little buggers. And that's great. You know, God, can you imagine how dismal the world would be if actually, you know, the blank slate view of the things was 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 accurate and correct? It's too much pressure In, in many ways, that idea is massively reassuring to anybody who's having a kid. Yes. There's only so much you can do. Absolutely and- right. Yeah, it really is, actually. It's like, well, you should have five or six because nothing you can do to them will make any difference anyway. So it's you might like as well just let them swarm. The dartboard. Uh, yeah. and, and a fuck you. What is something that's, that's kind of gnarled you this week? Uh, fuck you. This would go to um, legacy media, especially in, in America, who have been attacking. There's there's a sort of dispute, a row going on between um, especially New York Times reporters and various Substack writers. Do you know Substack? It's a bit like your, I don't know what, what method you use for having patrons like Patreon or whatever. But Substack is a, is a process by which... Um, writers can have their own fan base very much like the comedians yeah. do and and you you sign up for it and you can have different sort of levels of commitment and um and it's created a real tension with like the the new york times washington post yeah. media who don't like it at all and there's this kind of there are all kinds of attempts to delegitimize it undermine it to create sort of scandals where none exist you know to say that Substack is going to become some sort of hive of alt-right thinking you know these are people like uh i don't know andrew sullivan i don't know if you know him barry weiss and glenn greenwald and you know these are people who've been very much on the liberal sort of side of things but they're now creating uh really interesting invest proper old school investigative journalistic content you know Mm. unhampered by the um by the sort of 
canteen politics of of the big newspaper and it, and it, it sort of uns, unsettled the establishment journalists then massively it seems so there's a guy a philosopher i don't know if you know me his, his uh twitter handle is outsideness his name is nick land funnily enough he used to teach my wife philosophy at warwick university but he lives in um lives in shanghai now and he says in just one year substack has become the whole of the credible mediascape so that's the uh, that's his view. So that's expressing it a bit strongly. But I would certainly sooner read any of them over over what comes out. I've just found. I mean, it's it's been interesting, you know, the, the era of Trump, because obviously Trump was full of shit from beginning to end, you know, in yeah. many important regards. And a lot of his talk about fake news and his, his claims about the attendance at his inauguration, all the rest of it, that was all crap. But it certainly did, I think, expose, you know, extraordinary degrees of bias and, and motivated thinking within the, the liberal press as well. And I, I find it really hard to trust a word they say now. Well, I, I, I've thought for a while that my, one of my issues with the liberal left is that they just don't want anything to change. If you look at any of the big ticket sort of continuity global order things, that they don't want anything to change, whether it's the World Health Organization, the, the Paris Accord, Brexit. And you think, all right, fair enough. Individually, you can make strong arguments for all these things, but you just think there'd be one subject where they'd want to shake things up a bit. And it turns out that, <laughs> yeah. that even, they've probably still got blockbuster video memberships, probably. You know, they're probably yeah. still, still sticking with that. And, and, and it's you, weird in that regard. You're right. And yet, at the same time, of course, they are also those people. They are also like extraordinarily um, progressive in the sense that they're happy to do away with things that have sort of you, you know that they cannot see the immediate purpose of. But yeah. that the conservative mindset might say, well, actually, you know, those might be traditional responses to long-term no, chronic true. issues. Yeah, yeah, culturally quite radical, but sort yeah. of in terms of political institutions, just absolute old farts. Uh, right, we're going to crack on uh, with the first subject here, and we're going to yep. be talking about the RS teacher from Batley. Is it grammar school? Batley grammar school. It is a grammar school, apparently. Yeah, which is not an aspect of it that's been investigated enough, I think. But there we are. Okay, so this story about the uh, religious studies teacher in Batley, I missed it on last week's podcast because I posted early and apparently that freaks some of you out. You then think that Wednesday <laughs> is fucking Thursday or something. Um, but there was, uh, if you listen to this outside the UK and you haven't caught up with this story, there was an RS teacher at a grammar school in Batley, which is in Yorkshire. Is that right, Simon? Yeah. Yeah, be in Yorkshire. And he because. showed images uh, of the cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad to 13 to 14-year-old students. And there was a backlash uh, from some angry parents and he unfortunate was... term angry... <laughs> <laughs> maybe 20 <laughs> and he was immediately he was promptly suspended uh pending gross misconduct charges i think that's what they've uh they've leveled against him and i, I suppose like you know the first thing is is we don't have blasphemy laws in the uk and this does bring up this problem that's, that's happened before is this clash between certain religious principles and the actual rule of law in this country. I mean, we, we just, we simply, I don't really know what the legal basis is that the school think they have for suspending him. No, it's a, it's it's an ad hoc and sort of contingency response, isn't it? I think it's an attempt to kind of calm the situation down and take the heat out of it, but I think it's mm. badly misguided. I think it's, it's a terrible, terrible precedent they've set. I can't believe that they can 
that they can imagine that this is going to mollify anyone. Every experience, every you know encounter that we have had in this country and across the West with religious bigotry over the last 20 or 30 years, you could argue over hundreds of years, but certainly this particular flavour of it, where there's been any attempt to kind of mollify and, and to reach out and to meet halfway and so on has done nothing but reassure the bigots, the bullies, the, uh, you know, those, those threatening um, violent retributions that, uh, that their tactics work and that they will come out that much more quickly and, and, and that much more with that much more alacrity next time. You know, it's a terrible, mm. terrible precedent to set. They should have set their, set their stall out very, very clearly early on. The union should have, the teachers union should have come very uh, clearly and unambiguously to his aid, which they've been, as far as I can I mean, tell so far. the unions have just been incredible. If you look at how opinionated they've been over the last year in particular, you know, and certainly when it comes to teacher safety, there's a couple of yeah. unions that it was proved that they had plenty to say about the way that the Sarah Everard vigil was policed. Fucking nothing yeah. to do with them in particular. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, at this moment where it comes up, like there is, a, you know, a specific, I think like, in terms of whether or not they've been a direct threat in this man's life, there's certainly a fear which is completely understandable, given that not so long ago, in a country very close to us, France, a teacher was beheaded for doing the same thing. So even if yeah. the, the threat hasn't been directed, you can understand the anxiety. And yet the unions are just, they're just, well, you know, look, let's just, let's just be cool. Let's just wait to see what happens. So it's the same union that were like, no, let's keep the school shut and, and let's not see how infections work in the vaccinated age i mean the hypocrisy stinks i completely agree with you i mean it's not a new observation that unions are essentially a sort of you know a paramilitary branch of the of the labor party or of socialist politics generally and involve themselves where those issues match up closely yeah. to to their, their their main agenda but but, it, but this is a very clear-cut case where a, a union member or a, where a teacher needs support and where they need to encourage people to believe that they can teach freely and they've they've completely failed yeah i i i, I I think it's a very, very dangerous moment in British history because you you quite correctly draw the comparison with this teacher who was beheaded in France. It reminds me, without being sort of, I don't think this is scaremongering, it reminds me very much of how we watched in horror, but kind of like uh, a kind of appalled fascination as the virus, you know, swept through northern Italy about, you know, just over mm. a year ago and still had that feeling that the English Channel would somehow protect us from this. That, that oh, yeah. there was, that that there was no, you know, that there was no way it could cross here. That we'd no, see no, I, I thought that. I thought, like, the stiff yeah. upper lip would act like a form of PPE. Yeah, yeah, we think we have firewalls in place. We think we're protected, you know. Yeah. There is, and I, I'm not, I'm kind of a fan of British exceptionalism in some regards, because quite often it really does work. And quite often if you do just act like these things don't matter and don't count and won't affect us, they don't. Yeah. But, you know, we have to be uh, very clear that this is uh, France is a few years further down the road in terms of um, militant Islamism and um, and its attempts, you know, and they are obviously they have taken stronger measures than have ever been deemed necessary in this country. They have a much stronger, more vocal debate constantly ongoing about burqas and so on. You know, because it's it's been a longer problem. We shouldn't pretend that that can't happen here, that we can't get into that situation. And it's yeah. something I think we need to be extraordinarily clear and um, and uh, it's going to take a certain amount of courage to do that. And you know, something that really uh, annoyed me was that press conference that was given. Well, I don't even know if they were parents, but they were uh, Muslim representatives from the area. And the way that they tried to ramp up the rhetoric and broaden it. So it wasn't just that, you know, these cartoons have been shown, which obviously is going to be, you know, you can understand that that will cause offence, whether or not 
that means that the teacher shouldn't do it is another issue. But then they started bringing in your children's safety is at risk. And there were these yeah, kind of yeah, coded, yeah. coded yeah. illusions to being taught about same-sex marriages. And I just thought it was a strangely British moment where I just thought, you know what? No one is going to stop my son being taught about gays, right? It's, I just, <laughs> it's I just weird I, how that's, that's become like the agreed point, isn't it? It's like that old Schwarzenegger hand shake thing from you know that meme from yeah. the movies like we agree on the hard left and the hard right yeah we agree, we agree that the right to teach gay sex in religious education teach it but then also yeah, yeah. the right do have a tipping point well i saw a brilliant article by joanna rossiter in the spectator whereby you know there were uh there were we've had lessons where kids have been taught about drag and 11 yeah. year olds were asked to resort uh re research and revive not revise um hardcore porn Right? Yeah, so, yeah. So, so it, it, it's strange where the left tend to draw this line, and I suppose, like in so many cases, is that is that this pathological fear of seeming even like vaguely racist means that the left often take refuge in arguments and make fuck all sense. Well, the the safety issue is the big thing, and you're absolutely right. This has become like the key weapon to use in any attempt to get your own way like in what is generally termed you know social justice movements or whatever yeah. i think i think the trans movement may have like really i don't know whether it was a, like a trial and error thing when they suddenly found safety that unlocks the door suddenly yeah. you're in as soon as you say you're putting trans lives at risk as soon as you're saying you're putting trans children at risk as soon as you claim that safety is there's two things you either saying it's a safety issue or that you're denying someone's right to exist by by mm. your by your rhetoric is trying to erase their existence entirely and um you know maybe that I mean, in a way it would have made more sense to say we erase you know the prophet's existence but yeah as soon as they say you're putting children's lives at risk it in in the in a society such as it is now as we've seen obviously with the pandemic then you know it, it just utterly extinguishes and smothers any other kind of debate or or line of attack and i think you're right in, in a way to situate this because i think that there is there is a danger certainly when i see certain people who certainly come across as a bit racist is they they see this as a very different thing to everything else that's happening whereas i see yeah. these parents as part of everything that's happening which is part of cancel culture uh yeah. it's part of uh confirmation bias intellectual narcissism I well mean, it's exactly it's part very much of what i was talking about earlier with the newspapers mm. the, the way in which the new york times try and protect their journalists from any sort of criticism from substack writers or anybody else is by saying it's a safety issue you're harassing our journalist yeah. you say such and such a journalist is talking shit and this article is crap and it's poorly researched and it's biased mm. and they go you're harassing our journalists you're putting journalists lives at risk you know journalists live in fear you know, and then I mean, somebody posted yesterday a table of the top twenty-five jobs in terms of the dangers that they present. You know, from working on an oil rig, yeah. you know, down to working A and E on a Friday night. Funny enough, journalism wasn't in there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a relatively safe way to earn. I mean, you're, you're certainly unlikely to to face redundancy, but uh, but in terms of actually on the job safety. <laughs> so yeah, but they have found it. Safety is like that's become kryptonite to anyone who wants to maintain a sort of anti-fragile society. My view on, on Islam, I read it. There's a great piece called When Islam Breaks Down by Theodore Del Rimple. It's about mm. 10 years old now, I think, but it's, it's still online. It's worth reading. Where he says that the thing is that you can sort of understand their position in insofar as the Anglican Church, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, began a sort of modernizing campaign and started to yeah. include, you know, gay, you know, trendy, trendy vicars and, and yeah. uh, allow gay bishops and so on. 
And however much more inclusive it is, it's utterly lost its power, hasn't it? It's lost its yeah. authority. It's and lost its, never shape. It's lost integrity. It's never enough. It, you yeah. know, the slippery slope is real in this regard. And Islam wants nothing to do with that. They don't want any lines to be crossed. They want no mm. breach of the ramparts. You know, it's a totally zero tolerance approach. Islam is as as unblemished in its principles as it was in 680 AD or whatever. <laughs> they probably don't appreciate AD as a way of <laughs> dating it. But but yeah, let's say common era. But yeah. the uh, you know the, the the determination to maintain the purity of the thing. You know, there are some very unpleasant images of purity which are described uh, as the differences between men and women within Islam. I've, se I've seen this discussed, you know, that a, a, a boy who, who loses his virginity is like a, uh, you know, like a, a, a handkerchief that is that is dropped in, in the gutter but can be picked up again. But a, but, a, but a girl is, that's like a flower that's been dropped in the gutter. That's, that's gone now. I mm. think they think of Islam itself as like the flower. You know, mm. it, it, it cannot endure any kind of besmirchment. It has to be kept pure and clean. And, and so there is, there's, and, and that, when that encounters, you know, the, the generally sort of pluralist attitudes of Western democracy, that's a really tricky one to unpick. You know, we, we live alongside each other and pretend that the issue doesn't exist but when it does exist there's a there's a there's a total impasse i mean let's be like you know people might think that we would have a, a, a take on this that they could sort of anticipate i mean let's go straight the other way um showing that cartoon to 13 to 14 year old kids i mean like on a, on a person by person basis is there an argument that he could have just gone Maybe a shit idea. Maybe. Yeah, well, it probably is. I mean, I've never, like, I mean, his job has obviously been on a day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, encounters with the, with that community. He, he, he must have had some idea of how it was likely to play out one way or another and presumably mm. got it wrong because I can't imagine that this was his end game. you know. Occasionally you do see people in the press in these kind of situations who seem to have quite a substantial... Um, response already like do you know what I yeah, mean like yeah. when Lawrence Fox who I don't know and I've no particular beef with him one way or the other but when he went on question time I hadn't I don't think I'd ever heard of him you know suddenly it mm. sort of all flares up over a couple of odd interactions and now he's running for mayor you know a year later, and it, it sort of feels <laughs> like that was in hindsight that a bit like Piers Morgan storming off breakfast time you know you think well that's just a more dramatic way well I did think with the Piers Morgan know, storm off yeah. they, storming off is often really uh, quite quite a messy thing you know we've seen many yeah. often when you're on telly you have wires attached to you the fact that he just it was a clean walk to the exit yeah, suggested yeah. to me that it that was, was world wrestling federation wasn't it then, yeah. uh, <laughs> i'm sorry i've had enough of this on the tonight program yeah but um i don't think this teacher is one of those that's my point i don't think he's no. one of those guys who thought i want to even possibly that eaton teacher i don't know for for sure i watched his mm. video i thought it was a really interesting case but at least there i could see arguments for and against you know I could I could see what was going on to some extent that there was a, a, a dispute. I don't think this guy is in that situation at all, and you know it is kind of heartbreaking hearing his father say, you know, his life is over. Mm. You know, and I don't know whether that's. I mean, I would be amazed if that was some kind of dramatic script that they've written and cooked up between them to try and get up sympathy. I think he really feels that. I think I think he feels unsafe living in his hometown. You know, mm. and it, it, even if it was a misjudgment, which I would say it wasn't a misjudgment. But maybe it could have been described verbally. The thing with cartoons is they have no sort of intrinsic um, artistic worth, you know, so yeah. you can probably use a, a couple of dozen sentences would, would describe the entire situation without needing to to demonstrate the picture. I guess that would have been fine, you know. But there is there is context here. I mean, he is a religious studies teacher, so there, there is a, 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 a possible reason for him showing it. I mean, if this had been a PE teacher, 
going, mm. hey, lads, do you want to see this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do, I do think that then you're Do you want to see my new tattoo of Mohammed I've had done on my yeah, ass? I, I do think that then you're, you're, you're arguably in slightly different territory. I think when it comes to this story, I think I think what most people think, you know, I try to do this every once in a while. <laughs> Name check. And the... that's why it's in the line of duty. Yes. Easter, <laughs> you know, as a decision, it was it was a big shout, but it is you just cannot cross this line where if people are angry or upset enough that you have concessions to the rule of law. Yeah, I agree, because that's if you leave it lying there, it's like they've chucked some kind of seeds over the land, over the line, and if you mm. don't clear them up immediately, then they take root, and that's the new line. Mm. You know, and this line now exists. The line has moved. You know, what they've achieved so far has been established as a, con- as a consensus. A, a, well, you know, let's be honest. I don't think, certainly for a while, that there'll be any other RS teachers who will be showing yeah. any cartoons. So in a way, regardless of the outcome of the inquiry, it sort of worked. Okay, me and Simon are just going to hype a couple of our bits now here. Uh, I've got as a launch event for my book on the 11th of May, my book, Where Did I Go Right? How the Left Lost Me. Uh, There's an online event with an organisation called Fane, Fane, F-A-N-E, and it's uh, Ramesh Ranganathan. Uh, going to be interviewing me. That's on at half six. And I think there's a ticket whereby, like, if you want to watch the event and buy the book, the hardback book, it's like $16.99. I think the ticket is a tenner. The book is supposed to be 15 quid. So that seems like a decent deal. And there's also signed copies from Waterstones. You know, if you're one of these lefties, you don't want to give any money to Jeff fucking Bezos or whatever, um, is that there are signed copies, full price, but signed copies. You get a signed copy. I sat here doing them the other week and uh it's the most sort of stress i've put on my wrist since adolescence there you go a wanky gag <laughs> <laughs> and simon simon anything that i should be directing people towards for your good self um my main thing at the moment is uh, common sanity which is my own podcast which i've taken a lot longer to get off the ground jeff than you have with yours um but we're doing them now it's recorded at il portico restaurant and it's a collaboration with that in um in kensington and it's a sort of convivial long-form chat with two or three other people uh we've got a couple up on spotify and youtube now um but if anyone enjoys hearing me talk uh you know then uh, that's that's the place to do it my other thing is my patreon at the moment basically uh, if you want to come to find me on twitter the simon evans uh, the pin tweak takes you there and that's where i put all my written content at the moment there's probably a book's worth on there i should probably put it between our covers and, and bung it into waterstones but for the time being you can sign up to that for a couple of quid a month or whatever and that's uh, that's keeping me ticking over touring yeah. again in honest in in earnest i think starts in may um but mm. september is packed and hopefully the autumn will be uh, a chance to, to it's recruit. nice isn't it we now have a yeah. diary of a notional future that we can look forward to yeah a hypothetical idea of what might, <laughs> might happen you know just just a, a, a sort of a pitch this is what's your pitch? Well, in September you might be touring, Jeff. Yeah, I like that pitch. Let's let's work it up a little bit. Okay, this next story, trigger warning. Okay, it's just it's just going to annoy the shit out of you if you haven't come across this already. I'm just going to follow the link. I'm just going to talk you through it. Uh, this is a story on BBC News. School almost eliminates bullying with break time ban. On games. So a school claims to have almost eliminated bullying by banning games like football at break times. And the head teacher of the school, uh, the Hackney New School, such a surprise that it would come from that bit of London, but uh, says there have only been five reports of bullying this year because 
Well, they're not playing, they're not doing any fun stuff anymore. Rather than kicking a football around or jumping skipping ropes in the playground unsupervised, pupils practice sonnets by classic poets like Shelley and Tennyson or quiz each other on Capital City. So what this what this head teacher has done is essentially made break time another lesson and seems another to lesson, yeah. fucking credit for it. You know, it's just like saying society almost eliminates car crashes with bans on with ban on cars, right? And there's no car. Oh look, we're, we're down on car crashes. I'm starting to speak faster because I am fucking annoyed. And I do think, Simon, <laughs> what we've done to kids, not just in this last year, but particularly in this last year, are they just going to form a militia and just just shoot us all eventually? We, we, I'll just take it. I'll go. Yeah, I, I understand why you feel this way. What is well, going on? Arguably, that, that the whole danger is that they won't do that. The fear is that it actually works. That these these uh, that yeah. these methods and these approaches actually sap them of all their energy and their vigor, and and they they don't form militias and they don't fight back. Why and does she want credit for it? She she speaks as though she genuinely expects to get credit. For, it's a, for this awful thing that she's done to kids. And she says, oh, well, there's no bullying now. Uh, yeah, yeah. Under, other than in, intellectual bullying, one of the yeah, things yeah. that kids, some kids who aren't academic, <laughs> basically, really football. <laughs> it's the same way they say there's no violence because the state has monopoly of violence, you know. And yeah. she's basically got monopoly of bullying, hasn't she? She's She is the bully. She's, she's absorbed all the capacity for bullying into herself. And she's doing it by forcing kids who'd rather be playing football to learn poetry. Yeah, and kids getting I mean, bullied for not knowing their metaphysical poets now. Look at yeah, me, yeah. shit, uh, Shelley, or I don't even know. I mean, I've got to say, from my point of view, and probably we are slightly different, I'm, I'm, I don't yeah. know, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting, but I was one of those kids who didn't particularly want to play football in break time. I used to sit mm. in the uh, in the canteen with my mate Ross, and we played chess on a little pegboard, you know, a little yeah. travel chessboard I used to carry around. I probably might even, if there'd been a poetry society, I could quite easily have been one of those guys inside mm. there learning poetry instead of playing football. But it's a choice, isn't it? It's an option. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be an extraordinarily important part of the calculation. Yeah. It's not saying, you know, banning football and giving kids an option to play poetry, read poetry if they would rather do that. Those are two very, very different, you know. But essentially, it is all of a piece with everything else we said so far. It is the, the attitude to, you know, to lockdown. It's... Uh, mm. I saw a little exchange on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, Toby Young, who was, he posted some meme in which he was like, um, you know, if you give up your, your freedom, be careful, you know, you can be safe and you can be fed three times a day. Be careful what you wish for. And the picture was of a lion in a zoo cage and then a lion, you know, yeah. out on the savannah. And obviously the lion out in the savannah threatened, is threatened with starvation. You know, they, mm. they, they die. They encounter other bigger lions that kill them and stuff. You know, it's yeah. a dangerous life, but you know, which one do you want to live? And uh, and Adam Rutherford, a geneticist from uh, from UCL, posted this response saying that actually lions in the zoo live twice as long as lions in the wild, as if yeah. he hadn't realised that you know Young was aware of that, but was still saying you're you're willing to just sacrifice any kind of sense of dignity or yeah. or kind of the, the ability autonomy. To yeah, exactly. Where is that all going? Bullying is like nobody likes that word bullying, but you know, the the rough and tumble of of school playground life is an important part of play. That is bullying is basically where play crosses the line. Bullying yeah. is is where you learn you know that you i mean and i provoked i used to get punched more often than i inflicted pain on anyone else at school me too yeah me and too. i learned valuable lessons it was don't try and use your fucking linguistic facility and fluency yeah. to ridicule a bloke who's six inches taller than you it's a you good know? life it's lesson a, it's a good life it's lesson. a really handy lesson that 
one, one of the other things she said that really bugged me, I, I've read this story far too many times. She says, uh, she said, we often see kids aimlessly wandering the playground. We want every second at school to count. There's nothing wrong with aimlessly wandering uh, the playground. Like it's the same as like time when you're just not looking at your phone and you're looking at a wall. That is, yeah. that is golden time. That's really important time. You just, where you defrag your fucking brain. And the idea... This argument has been going around for centuries. There was a character in Dickens called Greg Grind who was like, it was like mm. a Dickens' mockery of the utilitarian yeah. sort of philosophy. What we want is facts. You know, we've got no time for, for religion or poetry or, 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 yeah, as you say, staring out the window, you know, staring mm. up at the sky. It's a really important part of any human process, you know, and the idea that you're not going to be able, you're going to be able to sustain that in the rest of your life. You need to learn how to use a certain amount of self-discipline in order to snap back into reality when you need to as well. To be just yeah. kept permanently on rails means you'll never learn how to use a road. Yeah, just a kid just walking around, chatting to their mate aimlessly. One thing that people forget about schools, and it just used to occur to me a lot when I was a teacher, is that you're a teacher, you teach a single subject all day, so it's stressful, you're on your feet, but you roughly know what's going to happen. Kids will literally go drama, PE, history, maths. Their brain gets fucking knocked from left to right like a, a ship in a storm. And and so they, they we couldn't. I mean, if you think about like setting up a new laptop, I would set aside half a day just to do that currently. I and would we, think the single most useful skill anyone can have in the modern world is the ability to maintain focus on a task for at least five minutes until it's completed yeah. i mean how often have you like sat in your in your kitchen noticed that you need something which you normally order on amazon come back into your laptop to order it on amazon clicked open your screen and yeah. there is something that distracts you and you and and you spend another yeah. 20 minutes and, and you leave the laptop and you go back in the kitchen go oh sake, i forgot to order yeah. you know whatever it was this is i mean that is like that's almost like I would say half of being an adult is the ability to yeah. not to stop that happening too much, to not be derailed too often. And you will never learn that ability if you've always got staff telling you, right, we're now going to do this. We're now going to do that. You never get to choose what you're going to do next. You know, I, I just I honestly find it terrifying. I, and I think that just the fact that she I mean, like one thing I wonder, I suppose, is if my kid was out of school, would I confront the head teacher? Because one thing I'm learning, my kid's five now. And I always thought I'd be down there every week, you know, calling things out that yeah. I was sort of philosophically against. But then also you remember that your kid is the public face of you. So it's not a zero sum game. If you just go in there, you go, what the fuck are you doing? You're ruining these kids. <laughs> but my son is the one that has to yeah, be yeah. there day in, day out. Ours are totally like, oh, dad, please. Well, mum, please don't, you know, because I never yeah. threatened to go in. Mum, please don't. I mean, he absolutely mortified if she so much as threatened to go into the changing room and find his lost plimsoll, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you mustn't. You can't do that. You've got to make it a safeguarding issue again. That's it's how we do it. Somehow we've got to make it safeguarding. I don't know how you do it, though. Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 you're right. Like like so yeah. many examples, I've got to say that she 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 is endangering children's yeah. mental health. Our children but are she is. She is. You've got to read, yeah. you may have read, The Coddling of the American Mind. Did you see this book? came out about no. four years ago. Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, I think it's called. And, um, and it's about mental health crisis in universities, which they absolutely pin back to this kind of stuff. Kids mm. have never been exposed to any kind of criticism or rough and tumble or sturm and drang at all in their earlier life and they arrive at university and they're just not prepared for it they're just not equipped yeah. to cope with the responsibilities of of encountering the life in the raw you know and and it's all I mean, a lot of them they said it's like partly it's demographics because an awful lot of kids now are, are only children and i mm. you know I, i'm an only child myself so i know it was yeah. slightly different but in the 70s you know it was a very different thing you that weren't was like a rare protected beast, and weaponized yeah but it was do you remember it was almost like a coded it was almost like an like you know you used to whisper the words cancer 
<laughs> they go, only child. Okay, so I think, look, I, I don't want to ever claim to have like a singular voice on a subject, but I, I honestly think what most people think on this is this fucking mental. This yeah. woman is a menace and she needs to be stopped. Okay, uh, letters. We've got a few letters. So I put the shout out to the patrons, VIP patrons that you're going to be on the show, Simon. This one's less a question, just more of an apology. This is from Matthew Chrisley. Uh, no question, but I do have a vague memory of drunkenly heckling Simon during a uni gig in Portsmouth in 0203. Please wow. apologise on my behalf. Forgiven. I'll be a BC dramatically if you'd have rejected the apology there. <laughs> <laughs> Subjected to, you'll revisit. Simon Harassment. Revisit in 20 years, yeah. You've got you put him in harm's way. <laughs> uh, this is an interesting one from Michael Slee. Uh, can you ask Simon if his view, any view of his, has shifted significantly in response to a media campaign or shitstorm? I suppose it's a more general point we face, whether... I mean, I suppose I'll give you an example of where I've slightly moved the dial recently and I didn't expect it was I watched the Megan interview and I had a very negative view of them as a couple going into it. And I had a slightly less negative view of them at the end. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I, I, felt, that, yeah. I felt there was slightly less dicks. What I suppose came out of that interview for me was I thought, actually, I do think that there is a real love there. And maybe I was a bit cynical about her motives to him. Um but yeah, I wondered if, I guess what he's saying is, 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 do we ever really move the dial on our own opinions? Yeah, it's a good question. On the Megan one, I would agree with you. Having watched the interview, that did improve my view of them. But then I think that's just a natural human response. And I yeah. don't think it is necessarily what I should allow to it, you know, in the same way that you're much more likely to hire the best candidate if you just look at the CVs than if you actually meet them face to face. Really? You know, because, yeah, yeah, it's that's a proven fact. And uh, mm. interviews tend to, to sort of muddy the waters, you know. And, and, you know, they were very extraordinarily well-trained. Even Harry has learned a certain amount. He of, has, uh, isn't he? You yeah. know, the capacity for for maintaining. I mean, he's, oh, God, love him. But anyway, he... Um, but did you see that bit where there was one moment where a couple of moments where he went to speak and she did the hand on the knee to stop him talking? And, yeah, and like, yeah. naturally, Twitter really zeroed in on that. But I did think that is not unusual in any situation between... No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's like a parents' evening, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, 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 not yet, dear. No. Not yet. They've read what you're going to say. They've reviewed it and it's shit and they're going to carry on speaking. But yeah, I think the way that media campaigns at the moment work, what it generally is, is that there's a moment where something is brought to my attention. I go, OK, that's interesting. I'll investigate it. And then I might might make my own mind up about whether or not it's somebody's grifting or whether or not somebody mm. has actually identified a, you know, a serious problem. And um, and so they have that they have that impact and they have that capacity to make you aware of the problem. But I think most of us have a natural disposition towards things, you know. Mm. I think this is like an interesting aspect of, of, of politics that isn't discussed enough. And, and a lot of people nowadays talk in terms of heuristics and confirmation bias and all that kind of thing. But yeah. it's been known about for a long time. There was a guy, a conservative philosopher called Michael Oakeshott, who I think wrote the best thing about it about 50 years ago, talking about the conservative disposition as just basically being somebody who prefers the, the local to the global, who prefers mm. the, the, the tried and tested to the experimental, and who prefers as he put it present laughter to future utopian bliss you know it's it's like if that's your disposition if that's what you just tend to be like emotionally if that's where your your mind settles naturally that would inform most of the sort of social campaigns that you you encounter yeah and you'll decide whether or not there is some whether or not basically there is a thorn in a toe that can be extracted relatively swiftly and without 
lots of unintended consequences, you know, mm. or whether what you're trying to get to is such a fundamental reorganization of society that it's likely to bring about the second great terror, you know, and those are the two, <laughs> kind of, you know, poles and you have to try and... Yeah, no, I think one of my, there was an argument by, uh, there was an article by Matthew Paris a while ago about like, are you a conservative? You, If you are, you tend to think these things. And one of the key ones for me is that old, that old one about, taking on the world as it is not as you wish it to be and i'm definitely yeah. you know a pragmatist and you know it comes to and that applies to something like gender where sort of people talk about the the possibility of living in a completely gender fluid society and i just think i just i just whether or not all of it is scientifically proved i look around me and i see so much evidence that this shit is way more baked in than we realize yeah. I, I'm well take- absolutely yeah John Randolph of Roanoke, who I mentioned earlier, is one of my great sort of 19th yeah. century conservatives, uh, gave a great speech in, in which he kicks off by sort of emphasising the broken and irredeemable nature of man by reminding us that the first born was a murderer. You know, Cain, the first man born of woman, you know, yeah. not just cultivated out of the dry clay was a murderer. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that's an historical fact. It's a mythical uh, position, yeah. but it's one that recognises, that means suggests that people recognise our fundamental nature. You know, the... Uh, I suppose, you know, you know or, or just the way that probability works. There's always going to be so many murderers. It just happened at the very first time. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Like, if you've got, it, it took another 20,000 people before a murder was, was born, but <laughs> it was just jolly bad luck that the first one out... <laughs> <laughs> what, what was a murderer but you know like Eve, Eve was uh Eve herself she was a little bit like I always thought there's something a bit Macbethy about you know there's a certain kind of wife that that's sort of cajoling her husband into making bad decisions and just just yeah. by bad chance the very first woman was that as well <laughs> and also the very first man Adam was a bit of a gullible prick so so straight out of the gate well, this is it. It, yeah. it. They did the hard learning so that we don't have to, didn't they? That's the point. And that is, of course, what they should be teaching in religious education instead of topical cartooning, probably. You know, they should be a little bit more emphasis on the lessons of the old books. I mean, the, the very first thing that God did in the sort of Christian understanding was a bit sort of smashed windows, wasn't it? Zero tolerance, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. One strike. <laughs> out <laughs> it's very hard to reconcile yourself to to a, a god like that but you go fucking you know on the I other mean, hand it's kind of in that you had one job kind of right territory isn't it he literally the whole garden you've got all the garden all yeah. of the beasts of the field fruit hanging low hanging fruit you know you're not being expected to till and plow yeah just don't eat that apple that but one apple it- if this comes around in a circular way, were they not like the lion in Toby Young's analogy, essentially, in captivity and ultimately destined to live a more risky but fulfilling yeah. life? Yeah, yeah, they certainly were. Paradise is it was an old word for just a walled garden. It was a thing that everyone had a paradise, yeah. yeah. And it's true. You know, yeah, is do you want to live in the walled garden? I think knowing that it's, there was an American commentator talked about this recently. Paradise is lovely as long as there is a gate in the wall, as long as there is yeah, a door yeah. and you haven't tested it and it isn't locked, then you can live happily in paradise. As soon as you test the door and you realize it's locked, then it's hard to be, be at rest, isn't it? I, th- I didn't mean? expect it to end up this philosophical. I did. I mean, I've, for me, it's the most ambitious thing I've done on this podcast is attempting to call back to, <laughs> to a point made by Toby Young. Didn't see that coming. As we're on um, this philosophical bent, as we bring the show towards an end, uh, this is from David Price, a uh, long-term uh, fan of the show. 
and patron. Uh, he says, uh, looking forward to Simon this week, Jeff. Great guest coming back again. Um, it is something about his drinking. <laughs> um, anyway, can you ask Simon this? How will the universe end? Big crunch, big bounce, wow. big rip or big freeze? Ooh, wow. I'm going to pretend I only understood the last one. I'm guessing the last one means another ice age. The rest of it, fuck knows. You'd have to there are two great, two great poems on this, aren't there? Robert Frost, some say the world will end in fire, some in ice. And it's a short poem. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but he says that hate and, and uh, love can both bring about the terminal condition. In um, There's a wonderful half-hour YouTube film about how the universe is, is predicted to actually end, and it certainly is in ice. It certainly is, you know, the, the gradual heat death of the universe, and that's the most yeah. plausible. But what's most striking about it is how soon it happens, how soon the, the end of any sort of prospect of life happens in terms of the total lifespan of the universe. The whole existence of, of it starts now, and Earth is basically swallowed up by the sun in the first, like, two minutes of this half yeah. hour, you know, and then all the stars go out. It's that it really, if you ever want things put into perspective, that is, the, that is the big perspective that mankind is not really built to, to, um, to cope with. But so that's, enough, the, that's the freeze, right? Can you define what's by, the by, by funny uh, coincidence, I was actually reading uh, T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men earlier today because it came up in something else. You know, this is how the world will end, not in a not with a bang but a whimper, mm. and, and that I think is 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 accurate. That's what that, I think. That I think he he get he penetrates to the heart of things. There, I think it will it will dwindle dwindle to a, a sort of muffled suffoc. It will be like the end of McMurphy in um in the uh, one. There will be the one. Best. Yeah. There'll be one solitary Guardian reader left saying, "Hey, yeah. say I told you so." That's what yeah. they will. They will. <laughs> they will ensure that their people live on long enough to just have the smug final word. Okay, that's pretty much the end of this week's podcast. Just a couple of reviews to read out. If you leave five-star ones, I will read them out. It's not really a fair way of doing it, is it? But it's certainly <laughs> it gone as much. the top of the pile. It just upgrades a few of the fours, let's be honest. Uh, just discovered this po podcast. Uh, refreshing to hear some rational discourse with a decent amount of humour. That's what we're aiming for, decent amounts of humour. Uh, Tabasco 2012. Uh, the podcast just keeps giving. For Disney Plus was for pedo Hogwarts-loving types. <laughs> hang on what the fuck uh disney plus was for pedo loving oh right because i said that disney plus i was grateful for disney plus um i don't even think that harry potter is on uh disney plus oh it reminds me of a joke that i used to have like a very jonglersy type joke simon once upon a yeah. time where i used to go uh, after there'd been quite a few harry potter films i'd say oh i tell you who is who is good looking you know the uh you know the one that plays uh, Hermione in the Harry Potter films, and then I went, they'd all be like, "Yeah." yeah. I said, "Well, yeah, I've only seen the first one," and it's great. <laughs> great moment to bring all these working class men in. There is a uh, there's a there was a series of celebrity photographs recently where they've they basically montaged contemporary photographs with pictures of them when they were younger. So Clint Eastwood yeah. with him, with him, with his sort of rawhide self and so on, and one of them was of Hermione, like as mm. she is now, with her, as she appeared in the first Harry Potter film, and of course a very attractive young woman now, and yeah. she's there with this Hermione. It's like a lovely picture. Like it was all, she's not quite mother and daughter. It's I guess older sister, younger sister. Yeah. But there is also this kind of sense that look at this young girl within her is is the yeah is, yeah. You know, There's a bit of Sasha of, Distel oh, going on, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, we got one from Singapore, Tom, here. I listen to Jeff's twerpish procrastinations every week via a secret earbud whilst making love to my wife. Normally, they come in at around 60 to 90 minutes, really. 
really. <laughs> I was particularly pleased to see the episode was only 39 minutes this week. Heroic stuff in the bedroom there, Tom. Uh, this is from Coventry Blue Nose. Uh, witty, not Chris, and the antidote to wokery. Wonderful. Uh, Covent from, yeah, from Coventry Blue Nose. Uh, just listening to Jeff's podcast, uh, episode 78. So listening to the back catalogue. Obviously, they're always the best way to listen to a topical podcast. And yeah, and, and also Pete Burton, who, who recently gave me a four-star podcast, which I refused to read out and told him on air that I wasn't going to do it. He's deleted that and now made it a five-star podcast. So Fantastic. I guess uh, I, I'm creating my own risk-free environment here. Um, Simon, thanks so much for, for uh, being on the podcast again. Just before you go, give us that the name of, of your podcast and where people can find it. It's called Common Sanity, and uh, that's a pun on common sanity, which is a word, a fancy old-fashioned word for breaking bread together, for eating together as a sort of means of, uh, you know, in, in, ensuring French friendly discourse. Uh, common Sanity. We've only got a couple up so far. We've got about five or six booked in now, and so gradually they'll emerge, but they're both on YouTube and Spotify. And, um, and there's a uh, Patreon as well. And the Patreon, which is uh, which you'll find uh, you know, if you search Patreon for Simon Evans or, or it's my pinned tweet. It's so funny how so many of us comedians from whatever the side of this fence this is yeah. uh, have done Patreons. Like we're pathologically unable to claim anything yeah. from the government. <laughs> I, I can't help me, God damn it. I'd rather have hernias. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've got to set up a little stall on the seafront selling second-hand books now. Brilliant. Uh, Simon Evans, thanks so much. Take care, Jeff. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay.